Okay, we are in uh, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And we're reading from verse 20. 26.20 of Matthew. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. And as they were eating, He said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray Me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to Him, Surely not I, Lord. And He said, He who dipped His hands with Me into the bowl is the one who will betray Me. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of Him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You've said it yourself. You know, I I think the the NIV says, uh, uh, Jesus said something like, No, it is you, something like that. Yes, it is you. And and, uh, mine says, You have said it yourself. Um, here's this man, Judas. Now, remember what Judas has seen. Judas has seen three and a half years of ministry. Judas has seen a time when people were raised from the dead, when the blind received sight. He was sent out two by two with the 70 that were sent out. He saw healings. He saw demons cast out. He saw all of these things. He grew up in a more active church-like setting than any one of us has ever grown up in. He had all of this exposure. He heard all the teachings that Jesus Himself taught. You know, it couldn't have been that you know the preacher wasn't very good and that's why he, he never connected. No excuse like that. He had the Lord Himself. All the different messages Judas heard. Judas heard all of these things. Judas saw... The miracles, greater miracles than had ever been done. He saw lepers healed. Remember in Israel, there was never a Jewish leper healed since the completion of the law because Miriam was healed before the completion of the law. But since the completion of the law, never had a Jewish leper. There had been Gentile lepers, but never a Jewish leper. And, and, and Judas saw all of these things. But still, still, it just never connected with him. Look in... In Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, you know, there is, a, there is a stiff warning here in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, reading from verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. I mean, that's pretty strong. What about this all-loving God who you know, would never really send anybody to hell? I mean, we have, to, we have to look at what this verse says. It says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. It says, if we go on sinning willfully, what what does the NIV say? 
if we deliberately sin. If we deliberately keep on sinning. If we go on sinning willfully, if we deliberately keep on sinning. You know, I've had many people come to me and, and share their struggles. And, you know, they talk with me and it is clear that in their coming to me, they're not happy with where they're at. And they are battling this thing as believers. You know, when I posted that message on my website on scriptural, sec- uh, uh, scriptural sexual ethics, you know, I, I would have these, these, these men come to me, men that I had never met before, that just happened to find this on the internet, and they'd, they'd come to see me. And um, they'd say, you know, I heard this, and they would start talking about the struggles they have in this area. And that's actually, in many ways, specifically the people that I wrote it for, the people that I, that I, that I uh, uh, gave that series for. And they'd share with me their struggles and how they were having such trouble getting victory in these areas in their lives. And the battle that was being waged in their minds. And it was clear to me that they were not sinning willfully. They were battling this thing. Sinning willfully is, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to continue to do that. This is what I'm going to do. That is a sinning willfully. As opposed to the battle that goes on in many of our minds against sin. And all of us have areas that we battle and we struggle with. And God uses that to keep us humble. Can you imagine what we would be like if God delivered us on the day of salvation from all of our sinful patterns? Can you imagine how proud we would be and how intolerable we would be with the unbeliever? But in the midst of it, what God often does is He delivers us from certain sins when we on the day of salvation. And then there's others that we struggle with till the day we die. We say, God, why? If we go on sinning willfully, there was a willful event that Judas was going through. And interestingly enough, you know what Judas's task was? What was Judas's job among the disciples that we see? What did the scripture say was Judas's job? Keeping the money box. Can you imagine Jesus putting Judas in charge of the money box? Now put him in charge of serving the food. You know, that way he can only put so much food in his pockets and steal it. What does it say? What did the scripture say that Judas used to do with the money box? Yeah, he used to pilfer it, it says in John 12, verse, verse 6. It says that Judas used to pilfer the money box. Why would Jesus, who knows everything, and has this money box, and remember, we've looked at this money box before, the type of money that may well have been in there wasn't just a little bit. It wasn't like they had 67 cents in there. It really wasn't, because remember, they said, why wasn't the perfume sold and, and, and uh, uh, for 300 denarii, 300 days wage, $30,000, and given to the poor. Or when they, were, when they were supplying bread, they talked about how much it would cost. And there was a lot of money in that money box. Remember, it says wealthy women in Luke chapter 8, starting from verse 1. It says wealthy women used to give of their own accord to the ministry of Jesus. It was supported by wealthy women. One of them being 
being uh, 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 the wife of Herod's steward. So King Herod, his steward. So it was actually the son of, of the man who was called King Herod. But his steward, his wife had become a follower of Jesus and was paying into this thing. Judas would pilfer it. Why would Jesus put such a man in charge? Maybe it was hoping that he would turn around. But such a man was in charge of the money box and he would pilfer it. He would steal from it. You know, so this stealing is not, you know, stealing from the church in a sense. It's not a new thing. It was happening not just in the book of Acts. It was happening before that. It was happening during the ministry of Jesus. Here is this man with all of this going on in his life. And look over in Matthew chapter 27. So just turn over the page from Matthew 26. Go to Matthew chapter 27. You see Judas's remorse after all of this in Matthew chapter 27, verse 1. Now when, nothing, now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. So he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together with the the money, and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. So you see, it says that Judas even felt remorse for his sin. And he said, he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But still, feeling remorse for something we've done is still not repentance. Repentance is turning and going in the opposite direction and doing works in accord with that going in the opposite direction. Still, there was not a repentance here. And it says, Judas went out and he hung himself. Look in Acts chapter 1. Keep your finger there and turn to Acts chapter 1. Just a few, few books later. Acts chapter 1. And if you look in Acts chapter 1, verse 15. Acts 1, 15. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received the share in in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakel Dama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. So you see that it's talking about this man Judas. 
And it interestingly says Judas fell headlong and burst open in the middle and his intestines gushed out. Is that the picture of a man who's been hung? Does that normally happen when a man is hung? That he bursts open in the middle and his intestines gush out? What could have happened? How did this guy die? Did he hang himself? Or did he bust open in the middle and his intestines fall out? And actually, if you read what happens in, in, in Jewish history, if there was ever a death, if there was ever a death in the city of Jerusalem on the Passover, none of the priests could partake of the Passover feast. So there was a provision there. So as you read in, in, in the Talmud, it says there's a provision there. What you can do is you can take the body of the dead person in the city, and you can throw their body over the wall. You throw their body over the wall, and then after the Passover is over, you can go and get their body, and you can bury it accordingly. So this makes perfectly good sense. This is exactly what would happen. They find the body of Judas hung, and according to the Jewish law, this is what they were supposed to do, the Mishnaic law. They were to take that body and throw it over the wall. And if you've ever seen the size of those walls, and the walls are really high walls, and they often go down into these big canyons, it says that he went over the, went over the wall, burst open, and his guts burst out. And, you know, this is what happened to the guy. So actually, the scriptures, both scriptures are true. It never says he died by having his belly burst open. He was already dead. He hung himself. But this is the price. And remember, the, the message here, though, is that feeling remorse for something we had done is not enough. It must lead us to repentance. That's an act that Judas never went through. Judas never went through an act of repentance, turning. Peter had denial and went through this, this denial and actually came back to the Lord. Judas never did. Feeling remorse is not enough. And this is a very big deal. Very often people feel remorse for the things that they have done. But repentance means turning around and going the opposite direction. Doing works, doing good works in accordance with what God has called us to do. This is repentance where we confess these things to God when we feel this remorse, and we turn it back over. You know, one day I, I, I confronted a man who was caught in a really gross and devastating sin. And at first he denied it. And then, and then you know, his, his, his wife came, and it was a really big deal. And I mean, it was so gross of a sin that, that uh, uh, you know, there were going to be charges filed against him. It was really, really quite wicked what he had done. And he came around and he finally said, yeah, I did it. I did it. And, and, uh, but there was something where the guy wasn't coming around. And, I was, and, and now what? Well, I just want to get back to my life. Well, two days later, the guy denied that he ever had even said that he did it. Even though right in front of his wife he had said the same thing, and in front of the pastor. And I knew he had not taken that step. So just feeling remorseful, and even saying, yeah, I did it. Because Judas says, I have sinned. And he was remorseful. But there is another step. 
Walking with Christ means that there's another step. That just feeling bad about it and just even confessing it often isn't enough. It is, God, I will turn around. Now, that's not to say that we won't stumble again. But it's, God, I'm turning around. I'm seeking help. I'm seeking counsel. That a man would come to me after hearing these messages on the internet and then say, I struggle with the very things that you were talking about. I have this struggle. To me, that says he is not sinning willfully. He is coming and he's saying, help me. Do you see the difference? There is a difference. You know, people come up to me and they say, I think that I have committed the unpardonable sin. I have this, and people come up to say, and say this to me, different people, several times a year. I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. You cannot commit the unpardonable sin. You cannot. That was, Jesus proclaimed it upon that people, upon that generation. We now know through the scriptures, anyone, absolutely anyone can be saved. And if you say, well, I've denied the Holy Spirit. You know, I've, I've done that. So why are you coming to me? If you really have committed something that where you've denied the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't care. You flat out wouldn't care. You wouldn't be coming to me. That you're coming to me all concerned about this shows where your heart is. You're okay. Repent, ask God to forgive you, and you'll be fine. It's that simple in life, huh? Don't I have to be slapped around a bit? No, you'll be fine. You'll be just fine. In that you're coming, it says something. Okay, let's move on. He then says, you know, the scriptures talk about entering through the narrow gate. Jesus said, the way is broad that leads to death, and many are those who enter by that way. But the way is narrow that leads to life. It is narrow. If you look in in Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. The gate is narrow and the way... For for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, this is a description of humanity. This is a description of what it's like. There is this broad way, very large, and it's just sloped straight down into hell. So it's an easy walk because it's sloped down. And there are many people going through it. The way is narrow that leads to life. And it is a hard road. And remember, when the way is narrow, you go single file and everybody sees you and sees your life. When the way is broad, you're surrounded by many people and you feel comfortable in this. Jesus said, this is a description of life. If you go on sinning willfully, there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. Jesus tells us to begin to turn. This is serious that we walk with Him. It is easy to end up going the path of destruction. And that's where most of our friends are going to go. That's what Jesus said. Most of the world is going that way. A much smaller amount is headed off toward life. Alright, let's turn back to Matthew chapter 26, picking up at verse 26. Matthew 26, verse 26. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup, 
and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Last week we talked a lot lot about the body and the bread, the blood and the cup. Today I want to focus on taking of the Lord's Supper. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So there are three instances in the Gospels. That instance in in Matthew chapter 26. There's another instance in Mark chapter 14 talking about the same event, the parallel scripture. And then in Luke chapter 22, the same event, where, where three of the Gospels report Jesus saying these exact words. And then in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Okay, Paul, remember, didn't receive this because he saw Jesus on earth doing this. He was not at the Last Supper. Paul got saved in the book of Acts. Paul got saved sometime after the the persecution of the church started. Paul was a main persecutor in the church. And he says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. So so Paul was not teaching what the the apostles had, had taught him. Paul received this from the Lord. When Paul got saved, it says that Jesus himself instructed him for a period of, of, I I don't know, it was like 14 years or something. Jesus himself instructed Paul. He said, how could this be? It's because Jesus is alive. And Jesus is alive because he rose from the dead and he can instruct whoever he wants. Plus, Paul was taken up to the third heaven and he received other things there too. So Paul is telling us what Jesus instructed him to do. And he says that, he said, Paul, you know, when I was in the upper room, and you were going around all upset about the church and, and different things as, as it was coming forth, and, and, and when I was in the upper room, let me tell you what happened. I took bread and I said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So what does Jesus tell us to do? He says, do this. In remembrance of me. He doesn't say, well, if you feel like it, do it. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Isn't that what he said? This is my body which is for you. If you feel like doing it, okay. But if you don't feel like doing it, don't bother. 
Is that what he said? No. What did he say? He said, do this in remembrance of me. Would you like me to change this scripture to make Baptists happy? Or should I leave the scripture the same? He says, do this in remembrance of me. Do it. That, that, that must be a metaphor for do it whenever I want. No, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Then he says, in the same way, he took the cup also. After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Do it in remembrance of me as often as you drink this. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we have three instances in the Gospels that tell us this same thing. And then Paul is teaching this to the church of Corinth. Then he says, whoever eats and drinks the the eats and eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He says, and in so doing is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This is something we are supposed to do. And believers will say this, well, I'm, I'm, I, I don't think I'm right with God today, I, I better not partake. That's exactly the opposite of what the Scriptures tell us to do. The Scriptures tell us to get right with God that day and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You say, well, I have some unconfessed sin. Well, duh, confess it. This is what the time is for. Bow your head and confess your sins. You need not beat your back with a chain all week to prepare yourself for this. Bow your head and confess your sins. And then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And if your sin involves another person that you have to ask forgiveness from, then commit in your heart to do it. Eat of the bread and drink of the cup and go out and do it. You'll have all the more power to do it then. He says, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Oh, so you see, I don't want to be judged, so I'm not going to partake. He says, that's just the opposite. He says, you are to examine yourself and so partake. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Has it ever occurred to you, or have you ever thought about this? Why is it that so many people say they're Christians and there is no substantive difference between them and everyone else in the world? Or between your own life and everyone else in the world? Have you ever thought about that? Has that ever occurred to you? The guy says he's a Christian, so he must be a Christian. Why is he not walking like a Christian? He says all the right stuff. He's got all the right words. Why is he not walking? The Bible says, here's one of the major problems. Because they don't take of the bread and and of the cup. He says, it is for this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. You want to know why people are weak and sick spiritually? This may also mean physically. I don't know. I don't know, maybe, maybe there's, a, there, there's, there's a Greek scholar here who can tell me. But when he says sleep, that I know means dead. Many are weak and sick and a number sleep because they either partake of the Lord's Supper without asking God to search their hearts, or they're not partaking at all. 
They're disobeying because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. He says, but, he says, but if we judge ourselves rightly, we won't be judged. So in other words, if we discern, oh yeah, I failed you in this this week, Lord. Forgive me. It's good. I'm not going to judge you. You won't be judged. And he says, but when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. He says, if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. So in other words, when we don't allow the Lord an opportunity to search our heart, we get judged. But if we allow the Lord the opportunity, we can repent of it, we won't even be judged. But when you are judged, you're not sent to hell, but you're disciplined. You're weak, you're sick, and a number sleep. You're disciplined by the Lord because of it. So when you come together, for, and, and then he says, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let them eat at home. You see, some people think that the Lord's Supper is the fellowship meal. That's what he means. It's a fellowship meal. It's just getting together and having a fellowship meal. And this puts that idea to rest. He says, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. That's like my saying, I want you guys to come over to my house for lunch. But before you come there, stop at McDonald's and eat. Huh? I want to be sure that when you come to my house to eat lunch, you're not hungry. In other words, this is not a fellowship meal. This is the Lord's Supper. It is something distinct from just getting together and, and having a fellowship meal like we do at our house every week. This is something different than that. This is the Lord's Supper. He says, when you take the Lord's Supper, this is not a place where you're feeding your face. This is the Lord's Supper. You say, well, you know, I do it once a quarter, and if I happen to miss church that week, it doesn't really matter. In fact, if you look in the book of Acts, it says they did this, they met together on the first day of the week to do this. This is what it says. They were meeting together on the first day of the week to do this. You know, and I wonder how many Baptist churches would put up with just having an offering once a quarter. You know, let's just have the offering once a quarter. You know, because people will then say, well, if you take the Lord's Supper every week, then it begins to lose its, its meaning and its power. Okay, that's fine. I feel the same way about prayer. If we pray every day, it begins to lose its meaning. So let's just pray once a year, because then we'll really be longing to pray. Right? How about reading the Bible? I mean, if I read this every day, it kind of loses its power. But if I had to long for it all year, then it would really be great. Let's just do it once a year. Or once a quarter. This is a real issue. Three times in the Gospels, he says, do this in remembrance of me. And then he meets with Paul and says, Paul, you know, I, I'm concerned here. Because I'm not sure that the people really are going to comprehend this, even though it's recorded three times in the Gospels. I want you to be sure to instruct the churches to do this in remembrance of me. This is exactly what I said. Do this in remembrance of me. Because I'm concerned if they don't do this in remembrance of me, 
they're going to become weak and sick. And a lot of them are going to die. They're going to die spiritually. They may also die physically. They're going to die. They're going to become really weak. I'm concerned about this. And they'll be proclaiming the Lord's death until He returns. Do you see why I like to have the Lord's Supper each week? Do you see why? I mean, is this just, you know, Jim Tour's tradition? Remember, I didn't grow up in the church. I was born and raised a Jew. This, this thing of, of the Lord's Supper is not, you know, Jim Tour's tradition each week. It says they met together on the first day of the week for the Lord's Supper. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This word Lord's Supper is... This word Lord's Supper is... is, um, is often referred to as the breaking of bread... It says in, in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Most scholars interpret this breaking of bread as the Lord's Supper. This is what they do. They, they came together and they broke this bread. Turn to Acts chapter, chapter uh, 20. Acts chapter 20. Reading from verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. And then it talks about what happened, and then they, then they, they took the Lord's Supper. You see that it is a good thing to partake of the Lord's Supper. It is a good thing. It's something that God has given us to partake of. It is a time when we are able to reflect, God, search my heart. Is there any sin in here that I've committed to you this week that needs to be dealt with? And it's not reserved just for Sundays. I've many occasions have done this with my own family. Where I'm there with my own family. And I sit with my wife and my children and we, we set up some bread and some cups. We partake of this. I say, Lord, search my heart. See if there's anything there. Because he says, if you don't do that regularly, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to judge you. And you're going to undergo some discipline. I would much rather him point out something to me and let me get on with it without having to be disciplined by God. Because he can have a pretty heavy hand sometimes. And this is what he says. This is what they partook of. Let me leave you with this one last thought. Let's look, look back in Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, it says, verse 29, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So what does he say? I'm not going to drink wine until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. To a Jew, this is very strange. You want to understand the Jewish mindset here? This is very strange. You always conclude the Passover feast with a cup. 
You drink the wine for the conclusion of the Passover feast. There's these set psalms that you sing, Psalm 18, and then you have this final Kaddish cup, which is the final cup. You must have that final cup to close out the Passover feast. Both Matthew and Mark record this exactly the same. That Jesus said, I'm not going to drink of the cup until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And it says, and they sang a hymn and they went out. And you're like, huh? To the Jewish mindset, this is very strange. Jesus never closed out the Passover feast. You say, oh, come on, you're... you're you're, you're, you're finding things that aren't there. Not so. You're missing things that are there. And Jesus again said in Luke that I won't drink of this cup again until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Okay, turn over the page to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. Verse 33. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink it. He was absolutely unwilling to drink that wine mixed with gall. Gall was actually an anodyne that would take away some of the pain, and he refused to drink that, but he also refused to have it because it was wine. He refused to drink wine. Why? Because he was not yet in his father's kingdom. He refused to drink it. Now turn over to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. So Jesus is on the cross now. And in John chapter 19... Verse 28. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, said, I am thirsty. Okay, so just as he was going to the cross, about to be hung, just first being hung on the cross, they tried to give him wine. He wouldn't drink it. Jesus underwent three hours of pain from 9 a.m. till 12 where he suffered. He suffered this physical pain for the sins of men. And then he was separated from, three, from noon until 3 p.m. He was separated from God. He underwent this spiritual separation from God. And we'll look more into that. But then in verse 28 it says, Knowing that all things had been accomplished to fulfill the Scriptures, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine up on a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Jesus concluded the Passover feast on the cross. That was the cup. He said, I would never drink of the wine again until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When he knew that everything was accomplished, he said, I'll take that wine now. I mean, this is very strange. Why on the cross? All of a sudden, he's about to die. And he says, uh, I'm thirsty. <laughs> Come on. I mean, you've you got holes in your hands and your feet. You've got blood all over you. You've been sliced up. Uh, I'm thirsty. He drinks it and he says, it's finished. Knowing that everything had been accomplished, he now closes out the Passover feast. 
because the Passover feast was not complete until Jesus drank of the wine to close out the Passover feast. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. You are so good. Father, thank you for your word which calls us to a place of repentance. Calls us to a place where we're to give our hearts to you. And Father, I pray that you keep us on that narrow road toward life. And Father, I pray that you cause us to seek you and to be turned toward you. Father, I pray that you cause us to honor what you have said and that we would seek you and do this in remembrance of you. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Father, I pray that you would bring this home to our hearts. And Lord, that as we judge the body rightly and allow you to search our hearts so we would not have to be judged. Father, I pray for these young people, the grace of God to be upon them the grace of God to be showered upon them. Father, thank you for your mercies. Thank you for the grace. In the name of Jesus, amen.